Mike DeWine is spending some time in Cleveland this week. He must be looking for some praise for what he's done with the vaccine and the mass vaccination center after having such a shoddy rollout for most people. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Layla Atassi and Jane Cahoon. Laura Johnston is coming back from skiing and should join us tomorrow. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. All right. Let's start with the let's start I mean, with a lay- Happy Monday. <laughs> Take right, two. Right. You're a little tired because, you know, we're we're still on before the clock change time. Yeah, that oh, yeah. kills me. Uh, I yeah, like but it, it, but it kills me. Yeah, I love the sun going down that late. It's after seven thirty with sunset last night. This is it. We're we're mm-hmm. back. All the bulbs are coming up. We're back. All right. After years of work and debate, have we accidentally accomplished bail reform to stop penalizing people for being poor? Layla Tassi, I think we started our Justice for All series in 2015. Or I mean, it's been a long time. Everybody has paid lip service to trying to take out the sting that people in poverty face, that people with money don't face when there's an arrest. Are we there? Well, we certainly took a giant leap forward during during the pandemic, though the ACLU of Ohio rightly argued to me last week that we still have a ways to go because we need to align Cuyahoga County suburban municipal courts with the practices that are now in full swing in, in Cleveland Municipal and Common Pleas. But like you said, you know, most listeners of the podcast are probably familiar with the, the work that was done on our Justice for All series. It focused on Cuyahoga County's unfair bail system, which, like you said, locks people up just because they can't afford to pay bail. These, this is all before trial. You know, I got so much email over the weekend from people like, don't don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Well, they yeah, these are people, right. this is pre, pre-conviction. So our reporters hammered away at this issue for three years and they were seeing some, some progress with the formation of that task force that had set forth a really great plan with next steps. But the effort had really stagnated for a while and there's obviously, you know, a lot of political reasons for that coordination across, you know, all the different systems. And then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden the court decided uh, in the spring that to prevent a widespread COVID outbreak at the county jail, they would have to release hundreds of inmates. And some of those people had their cases expedited through the system and others were released on personal bond, which means that on their own recognizance and, and not having to pay, put up any money. And the administrative and presiding judge, uh, Brendan Sheehan, told me this past week that the jail number started to creep back up over the summer. So in November, he did something that's actually pretty bold. He issued a recommendation to the judges who serve in the arraignment room that all county inmates charged with a third, fourth or fifth degree nonviolent felony be given the presumption of personal bond. And that dramatically reduced the jail population and those numbers have remained pretty stable, he told me. So at, at least that part of bail reform seems to have been accomplished pretty quickly. And it, it falls in line with what's happening at the Cleveland municipal level, which has also been releasing people charged with low-level crimes. And they've been trying out this highly touted risk assessment tool, too, developing also this pretrial services department and everything. But, but what's left for the bail reform movement is still a pretty heavy lift which is bringing all those other municipal courts in line with the practices of common pleas in Cleveland Muni. And and getting there will probably take the creation of that central booking site where centralized bond hearings can take place. And and that's in the hands of Armin Budish's administration at the county level. The, the, the sad part about this to me is that we could have done it right away. 
mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. the science was all there. These instruments were there. And people said, we'll get into it, but, but the former chief judge slow walked this thing while saying he was committed to it. It just went very, very slowly, John Russo, for years. And, and mm-hmm. it just never made sense because when we needed to have a smaller jail population, they did it overnight. And there's been no ill effect. I know there are some that are claiming that there's a crime spree as a result, that because we've let all these people go, that mm. there's a crime spree. But there's absolutely no evidence that the people they right. let go are out causing a crime spree. It's just populist nonsense, right? Yeah, that that's that sort of fired me up to look at the recidivism data related to the group that was that was released back in the spring. One of our you know competitors <laughs> in the news world put out a story that I thought was really irresponsible. There was a rash of break-ins in Westlake and the reporter asked some police lieutenant out there, do you think that this could be caused by the fact that the common pleas court, re- you know, that they released all these inmates back in April? And this this was story was months later. I mean, it was just like, you know, a month or two ago. And and the, the lieutenant was like, yeah, maybe. Yeah. And that became the headline of the story. Court releases all these inmates. And, and now there's a crime rate, crime rate in, in Westlake. And I, I just thought that was really fear mongering. And yeah, um, it's know, shameful and, right. and irresponsible and not public service. And it just goes no. for the clicks and you hate to see it. It's from uh, one of the broadcast stations in town not being responsible with that reporting. Well, it was a hell of a column you put together on this. It's it's thanks. I, again, it's great that we're here. And you're right. Now we need to move further. Look, there's a taxpayer part of this, too. This saves a lot of money. And so it's not just that you treat people equally, no matter what their means are, and you give them a chance to continue their lives instead of locking them up needlessly for weeks or months. But it saves taxpayer money. So it's a mm-hmm. it's a win all the way around. And Definitely. we should have been doing it. All Especially along. as they're considering building this new jail. They can build a smaller jail if they don't need to house as many inmates. Exactly. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Cleveland is getting more stimulus money than any other Ohio city, and Cuyahoga County is getting the second most of any Ohio county. So, Jane Cahoon, how much are they getting and what can they do with it? And I've got to say, Andrew Tobias' story on this was just great. You had told me he was working on it, but until I read it, I didn't realize just how terrific it was. Yeah, he really put it in perspective as far as this stunning amount of money that's going to be flowing to the state and to cities like Cleveland. Cleveland is eligible to receive more than $541 million over two years. That's almost $290 million more than Cincinnati, which is, is, is getting the second most. And just to put it, that in perspective, it's more than Mayor Frank Jackson has proposed spending, which is $371 million in 2021, on police, firefighters, and general public safety. So, I mean, and that's like, the, the city's largest budget item, and it's like more than half their budget. So Cleveland is getting more because the way they're allocating it is under the Community Development Black Grant formula, and that directs money to cities with higher levels of poverty and older housing stocks. So Cuyahoga County's getting $239.5 million, the second most of any county in the state, as you said, and Franklin County is, is, is first on that. This is all part of this $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, which, you know, also includes the $1,400 direct payments to to, peop- to income-eligible people. Overall, that's going to send $350 billion to 
state and local governments across the country. Ohio's portion is $5.6 billion. That's roughly twice as much as our rainy day fund that uh, Governor DeWine has left in place, you know, despite the challenges of the pandemic. So, and then Ohio counties, cities, townships, and villages are getting another $5.4 billion. That's the total for them through this bill. And it was funny, De- DeWine was asked about it last week and he said, yeah, that's an awful lot of money. <laughs> the thing is, this is sort of being greeted cautiously because they're waiting for federal guidance on how exactly how they can spend it. And there's a little bit of concern that because the Democrats added a provision that forbids the governments from using it for tax cuts, they're they're a little afraid that they might be hamstrung, you know, depending on how they decide to use it. But they uh, well, they just have to stop the the, the tax cutting. I mean, they've right. done that year after year after year, and it's been stupid <laughs> because now, I mean, that's why the unemployment computer systems are wrecked. They cut taxes right. so much they can't maintain their systems. So. That's an easy thing. You get to keep the money. Stop the silliness. Here's the thing. Does this make you nervous? I mean, it seems like Cleveland getting more than its general fund budget (laughs) doesn't make sense to me. They don't really need that much money. And whenever you see that kind of dollars rolling out, you know they're going to be crooks looking to get their hands on it. You know there are government officials. I mean, if local governments are getting this, Local governments don't have the tightest coverage by by news media anymore because they've been so hamstrung. I, I just I feel like we have this enormous duty now in our yeah. newsroom to build an accounting system where we track every damn dollar that comes in because there's going to be thieves that steal it. Anybody else nervous about that? A little bit. But, you know, I mean, this money could really make an impact. Like DeWine wants to use it for broadband expansion. And then, you know, we've talked before about how much money the cities are going to lose from this work at home thing with the with the income tax. I don't know if that that will help them, you know, make up for that. And yeah, but I um, estimated that to be about at, at its most for Cleveland. 40 million a year and they're getting mm-hmm. 500 plus. Million. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't want to be naive about it. Yeah. You can bet there's going to be, we're going to hear these stories about some of the interesting things they choose to spend it on. But, uh, well, Armin, of, think about Armin Budish has used pretty much all the stimulus they've gotten so far to award no bid contracts. And he keeps trying to tell everybody <laughs> they're not no bid contracts. They're not no bid contracts when they are no bid contracts. And he's really, shameful and trying to say not. So is he going to take 200 plus million now and just give it out to whoever he chooses without competitive bidding? Well, he, to- he told Andrew that uh, it's going to be used for mortgage and rental assistance, buying public transportation vouchers to help those without cars, you know, get to their vaccines and covering larger jail expenses. So I, I know when it comes to him in the jail, you're going to be skeptical, but that's what he said. But Chris, I think that's a really good idea to create some sort of newsroom apparatus to to track this money. I love that idea. Well, and I think we need it for every every small government, too, in Mm -hmm. in the entire Mm -hmm. northeast Ohio. How much are they getting? What are they spending it on? That would be a huge public service. We should do it. No, I I sent a note out to my text account this morning suggesting we're doing that. I hope they send me some ideas. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We've talked about Kevin Kelly, Dennis Kucinich, and Justin Bibb. Who's the latest likely candidate in the race to replace Frank Jackson as Cleveland mayor next year? Leila Tassi, this isn't a surprise, but it's a little bit of a surprise. Well, you're probably talking about Zach Reed, <laughs> the right. former former Cleveland City Councilman who 
who failed to unseat Mayor Frank Jackson the last go around. And he has since taken a job for Secretary of State Frank LaRose as his statewide minority affairs coordinator. My colleague, Seth Richardson, who will be covering the mayoral race this year, he reported that Reed has quit that job to, quote, explore my political future and prioritize the needs of the Cleveland community, which is code for run for mayor. (laughs) So, you know, Reed, he was on council for 16 years representing Mount Pleasant and Union Miles. And he was a super popular councilman. He handedly won re-election every time in his ward. And and he beat a crowded field to join Jackson in the runoff in 2017. But Jackson crushed him by 17 percentage points. And a lot of people saw that as a really risky move, giving up a council seat that was a sure thing to run against a three-term incumbent. Well, remember, uh, though, he got into that runoff with very few votes. Very few. Turnout was was like 7,000 or something. Yeah, right, So, So it wasn't hard to emerge in a runoff when nobody votes. And then you're right, he got slaughtered by like 19 points or something. But he hasn't officially announced his candidacy. And in fact, no one has but Justin Bibb. We're still waiting on Kevin Kelly and Bashir Jones and Dennis Kucinich. They've all been raising money. I, I'm not sure what they're waiting for. Well, Doesn't it feel like we're getting a little late? to Kevin, <laughs> Kevin Kelly has sent out mailers for St. Patrick's Day, which say reelect Mayor Kucinich. So clearly he's running. Kevin Kelly is doing his listening tour, actually not being well received from mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the reports I've heard that he basically defects blame for problems and blames the pandemic and is not satisfying the people who are <laughs> he's oh, listening man. to. And then you have Justin Bibb. Look, the, Zach Reed, in that poll that was done in December, people talk about Dennis Kucinich at 25 percent. Reed was at 13. So, he, mm. you know, you could end up with a runoff with Dennis Kucinich and and Zach Reed, if Zach Reed's entry in the to the race would hurt Justin Bibb. Justin Bibb is a, a young guy who's not well known. Zach Reed is really well known. The only thing is, is I've heard that that poll showed he has pretty high negatives that people do not look at him. That favorably. Zach Reed has high negatives. Yeah. So, they, you know, maybe there's something that they, they could work well, on there. You know what everyone always clings to. And it's it's Zach Reed's, you know, history of DUI and Everyone returns to that unfortunate past of his, and that's uh, that's too bad that that always comes into play. But you know, and 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 meanwhile, you know, Justin Bibb is this fresh new face in in, in politics, and I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how. I to, think how Justin to Bibb has a real hard road though, because he hasn't spent thirty seconds in government, and he wants to go from that to that's running true. a billion dollar plus budget. I, I just I. Knowing everything we know about how government works, I can't imagine how somebody would be able to do that. Uh, and then, look, Dennis Kucinich remains popular, even though he's got baggage himself. He's taken a lot of money from the Tony George and his family, and those people are closely aligned with First Energy, which is not a good thing to be tied to in politics these days. Mm. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Mike DeWine came to Cleveland Sunday to talk about the Mass Vaccination Center opening at the Wallstein Center officially on Wednesday with a soft opening tomorrow. Jen Cahoon, it was weird that he came up on a Sunday evening to talk about it, and he's now giving a tour today. You think he's trying to get some good publicity out about a positive vaccination news story? (laughs) I think he wants to prove you wrong, Chris. I think he wants to show you what a great job they can do with 
getting these vaccines into people's arms, as they say. But that doesn't prove me wrong because because I'm basing what I say and what everybody says on history. If he can get it right now, that would be wonderful. (laughs) You are never wrong. (laughs) Um, So anyway, DeWine said that up to 210,000 COVID-19 vaccine doses are going to be distributed at the Wallstein Center. And they're going to set aside a portion of those for underserved minority communities. Don't force me to do the math on how many that amounts to per day over the eight-week period. But for for the first three weeks, they're going to do the first dose of Pfizer and that's up to 126,000 doses. The next three weeks, they're going to do the second doses of the Pfizer. And then during the seventh and eighth weeks of this clinic, they're doing the Johnson & Johnson one-shot deal. So, And up to 84,000 of those are going to be given out. The other thing he did was announce these community partnerships with organizations like the Urban League, which he visited, that are going to expand access to the vaccine for minority communities. They're going to work to not only register for people, but to try to transport them there and to educate the public about their effectiveness. They're even running like uh, radio commercials, you know, encouraging listeners to get vaccinated. But as you said, it opens Wednesday, but they, they are doing this soft launch on Tuesday with about 1,500 appointments set up through these community partners. And then when they do formally open on Wednesday, they're not going to do the 6,000 shots a day right right away. That's what they have the capacity for. But they, they're hoping to just ramp that up by the following Monday. He also dropped a hint that he might be opening up eligibility even further to those maybe even 40 years old and up yes, in the coming days. Yes. So, <laughs> so Layla, you will be in. I might um, be off house arrest. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that about that about sums it up. They they are going to also open up these appointments like if they if people cancel their appointments or if the appointments that they set aside for the community partners don't get filled up, they're going to make those available so it would um, be helpful to keep watching the the website when they when they open these things up like 48 hours before each date and that of course is gettheshot.coronavirus.ohio.gov and now there's a phone number you can call which is 18334275634 or the United Ways 211 hotline Okay, so a couple of things. Full disclosure, I actually managed to snag one of the first appointments on Wednesday, so I'll be able to talk Thursday morning about how well it went. Hopefully it runs efficiently. Second thing is, why do they make people keep checking the website? Why don't they take their names and emails and phone numbers and as appointments come open, reach out to them to say, okay, Seriously. you're next in line. I, you know, when I became eligible a week ago, I went down the rabbit hole of clicking on all these things and going through the 8 million keystrokes to get to the point of futility where it says we have nothing. And then when the Wolstein registration came open, that worked really well. I mean, I went in, I got the appointment, you know, all was well. I sent a note out to people on my text alerts and a bunch of them then did it and said, man, that was easy. But, but now you can't, now it's, it's more difficult. So why, why make, the people have to come back over and over and over. And let's face it, when you get down to people who are 50 or 40, they're working, a lot of them. And so they can't spend the day while they're getting paid to do work, checking a website, just take their names and get back to them. I I didn't understand that part of this at all. Layla Tassi, the vaccine queens don't either, right? Yeah. I mean, they've weighed in on this already. They see it as, as a 
I mean, especially, you know, as it relates to the the other, this was supposed to be much more one-stop shop kind of scheduling system. And and really, it it just takes you in all these other different directions. I just don't understand. You should be able to, to just register and then they compile some sort of waiting list so that, as you said, that you get the call saying it's your turn. Let's schedule you. This is just the same. It's the same as all the other pharmacy websites where you have to sit there and hit refresh over and over. You have to know exactly what time they put those appointments into the system. That's ludicrous. Yeah. <laughs> there are a couple of organizations that do do this. It's not statewide as as it should be. But for instance, like university hospitals, you you sign up and you get like into a, onto a waiting list and then they get back to you when they have something or the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. They right. did it that way because I. I experienced that myself where I had gotten an appointment, but then in the meantime, they got back to me saying, hey, it's time to make your appointment. So it is happening, but just on a smaller scale individually. All right. Well, we'll have to see how it goes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. After a year where most people spent more time than ever before at home, we are likely to see, or are we likely to see, more people suffering from agoraphobia as the pandemic widens down and people venture back outside. Leila Tassi, reporter Robin Goist, did a very thorough look at this, and it's not good. Yeah, it was a really fascinating story. She spoke with a, a professor of counseling psychology at the University of Akron who said that psychologists definitely expect that this condition, agoraphobia, has been on the rise on account of our year spent away from others and in fear of encountering the coronavirus. So agoraphobia is the disabling fear of being trapped or embarrassed while away from home or, or in a crowded place. And to be diagnosed with this, we're talking about six months of consistent symptoms, which can escalate to panic attacks. Apparently, women are more prone to this condition, and, and there's a strong genetic component to it. Robin distinguished this from COVID anxiety, which is not an official diagnosis, but many mental health professionals are, are calling it that. A certain level of, of fear of COVID is healthy, is what they say. And, and it keeps us out of harm's way, right? It's it's the reason we wear masks and wash our hands. But for some, this past year has been really hard. Going to any public place creates a debilitating fear of crossing paths with the virus. And, and so for those people, Robin's sources say they should consider professional help so that they can regain their lives as the pandemic restrictions gradually ease. I, I often joke, like I did earlier, that I'm on house arrest because I so seldomly leave my house for any reason. You know, my husband is a nurse and he's fully vaccinated, so he just he does most of our shopping. And I can kind of identify with with this story. I feel I'm a little bit worried about when when things start to get back to normal. I feel very hesitant to rejoin <laughs> rejoin society. I'm I'm a little I you know recently took my kids out to 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 buy a a. a you know, a gift for, for their good behavior or whatever. We were at five below and it felt so crowded there. I felt really on edge. And, you know, I feel like uh, I would probably categorize that as COVID anxiety, if, uh, you know, not necessarily agoraphobia, but I can identify with this story. And I'm sure many I, people can. I sent out a note when we were launching on this story, probably more than a month ago on the, my uh, text account just to say we were thinking about it. And some people came back and said, oh my God, more bad news. What are you thinking? But I've heard from a steady stream of people hearkening back to that saying, hey, you know, I'm feeling that. I'm, yeah. I'm, I tried to go out and I'm feeling that. What do, you, what do you have? So I was glad Robin got 
all, you know, such a thorough amount of information to, to help people cope with it. It is odd to suddenly go out. We had to go to a Lowe's to buy some carpet over the weekend. And I hadn't been that far out of, of the, on that side of town in a while. Was amazed at all the things that had been built since I was last there. But, but I was also annoyed as hell because I wanted to just order it online. We've all gotten so used to ordering things online. You don't really want to go to the store anymore. Fortunately, I didn't feel that same kind of crowded kind of thing. It was more the annoyance of having to go do it. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine passing the buck on massive unemployment fraud that has victimized so many in Ohio? What did he ask for in a letter to President Joe Biden? Jane Cahoon, this certainly seemed like passing the buck. Yeah, it was interesting to see how this letter was worded, you know, after all the apologies and all the problems that have gone unsolved with Ohio's unemployment system. This letter dealt specifically with that fraud that's just plagued the system. It, you know, tens of thousands of bogus claims being filed every week. But because this fraud is happening all over the country, DeWine and Lieutenant Governor John Houston wrote to Biden last week and called for a coordinated national response to the problem. Specifically, they said, while states are doing everything they can to administer the federal programs while maintaining system integrity, a state-by-state response is proving inadequate. This is not an Ohio problem. It's a national problem that requires a national solution. And then they go on to, you know, talk about how there were looser requirements with the pandemic assistance, the pandemic unemployment assistance, and that led to this. And because the the federal government was prioritizing, you know, distributing these benefits as quickly as possible over catching the scammers. Um, but, you know, I think from what we've heard from readers, it, it might be safe to say that our state might not be doing everything they can. I mean, we hear about like employers and employees flagging fraud and then the state going ahead and paying the claims anyway. I mean, we've gotten all sorts of, I think, Chris, as you said before, this is, you know, we get more reader response on this than almost anything else. People are so frustrated over it. So anyway, they did sign a contract recently worth over 10 million bucks to to help them better detect and prevent fraud. But they they clearly are laying a lot of it on the federal government through this letter. Yeah, except, like you said, I mean, we've heard from one person after another of uh, business owners that get the claim for somebody that doesn't work for them. They reject the claim and then they see that it's paid anyway. I don't get that. I mean, there is a fail-safe system to stop this and Ohio's not paying any attention to it. It's that's That's been one of the very common themes of this. And that's not a federal problem. That's a state problem. Right. The state's supposed I mean, to do that. You know, it's valid in the sense that this is, yes, this is happening all over the country. Could it hurt to have a coordinated federal response? Well, probably not. But, you know, you can't just say, oh, it's your fault. We don't have any responsibility for it. Look, Mike DeWine has failed for an entire year now to fix his broken unemployment system. And this seemed like a Hail Mary pass. You know, hey, Joe, Joe Biden, you fix it because <laughs> we we can't figure out a way out of this mess. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, that'll do it. We got some questions that'll have to carry over. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. Laura Johnston should be back tomorrow. <laughs>